Magnus Podcast, episode 10. You want it, you got it, for some reason. Another bonus episode, Three Beers with John Johnson. Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus Podcast. I'm John Johnson. I don't tell you that on the normal episodes of the podcast, but with three beers and these bonus episodes, all bets are off. So not only do I tell you my name, but we give you great jingles as well. And sorry for the delay in getting these podcasts out. We had some very important things happening in the last few weeks, including the public launch of the Albertus Magnus Institute at magnusinstitute.org. I want to thank Everybody on behalf of our board and our team who made our launch so successful, the amount of applications that have come in for the Magnus Fellowship have surprised us all. And so we are still processing them and hope to have them processed uh, by the new year or so. And uh, at that time, we'll also be ramping up our podcast production schedule to get back on a weekly basis. But for now, uh, I wanted to leave you with this bonus episode a uh, very good conversation that I had over actually not beer, but wine. I had had a, a great time wine tasting with the great Dale Alquist and Chuck Chalberg. Uh, if you don't know who these men are, you should. They are uh, the reason that most of us have heard about G.K. Chesterton and been, been exposed to his amazing work. And in this episode, I'm wine tasting with Chuck Chalberg, who is not only uh, a professor and a historian and an author, uh, actually a PhD, but a, uh, a renowned G.K. Chesterton impersonator. So uh, in this discussion, uh, we get to pick the brain of G.K. Chesterton himself, or at least Chuck Chalberg in persona Chesterton, who uh, is going to give his thoughts on the current political climate in the United States of America and other things, so many, uh, many gems of wisdom coming our way here. And I had a great time taping this. Uh, pardon the noise. We were outside, so you might hear a large dog chewing on a bone at Chuck's feet. Uh, but hey, this, this is, uh, you know, that's showbiz. Okay, so without further ado, please enjoy this episode. And thank you again for making the launch of the Albertus Magnus Institute a reality. Uh, it was great. And more at magnusinstitute.org. We've got great things in store for you. We are trying to launch at the pace of prayer, not get too far out ahead of our skis here. Uh, And so bear with us as we process the applications for the fellowship, as we prepare to release our faculty. It is illustrious indeed. Uh, I can't wait to share that with you. Uh, But without further ado, here is Chuck Chalberg, G.K. Chesterton on the United States of America. Enjoy. I've I've often wondered about his respect for the common man in, in the light of today. I, I he never would have joined the ranks of the Hillary Clintons and condemned the, the deplorables of as as her term had it for the ordinary man. But I I find myself sometimes wondering if. Um, given uh, all the diversions that we have today and all of the bread and circuses that we have today and everything that that uh, that, that overly occupies us today that 
the, the, the common man is just as susceptible and maybe even more susceptible. Uh, I, 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 I worry about that, um, that he, uh, uh, his, uh, his belief in and commitment to uh, the common man might have been mitigated by that. Uh, I love the, the William F. Buckley line that he'd rather be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston phone book than by the, the Harvard faculty. <laughs> And I, I I agree with that. I I, um, I I think Chesterton was a populist mm-hmm. at heart, and uh, I, I I find myself uh, a populist at heart. When I was younger, I was, um, I guess I would say I was a left wing populist, and as I've gotten older, I've become a a right wing populist and. Chesterton yes. had a had a fascination with American political affairs, right? He did. I mean, he came here in 1921 and uh, uh, wrote a book called "What I Saw in America." Uh, and um, so, did he live? To, I mean, he did live. He did live. But was he interested in the the rise of Wilson and the the rule of the academic elite that he personified? Well, he was interested in it, but he wasn't. In by any means, in agreement with it, he, he, he was thankful that Wilson finally took the United States into the, the Great War. Uh, he wanted the United States to be in that war a whole lot sooner than it was. I'm still of a mind that that I mean that war is the watershed of the modern world. I mean I don't think we've yet. And maybe we never will recover from World War One, meaning Western civilization. I don't think Europe will ever recover from World War One. Right. And you know, it was Chesterton was convinced that uh, Sir Edward Grey uh, should have, uh, you know, issued a warning to the Germans, to the Kaiser, before that war started, saying, "Don't do this." That. If you do invade Belgium, we will go in. I don't think the Kaiser really, well, who knows, but a good part of me thinks that they never would have gone in if they were assured. The Kaiser, as I understand it, believed that the British weren't going to come in. And a lot of the British liberal cosmopolitans, to borrow Chesterton's phrase, he disliked, maybe even hated, the cosmopolitans. And, Mm -hmm. And... they did not want Gray to issue such a warning, fearful that it would have meant war. In fact, it might have meant no war if if the Kaiser had been convinced that the British, in fact, would go in if if they invaded Belgium. And Chesterton was not uh, anti-Habsburg, right? He might have been anti-Kaiser, but he, he wasn't. He was very anti-Prussian and anti-German and and. And that part of Wilson was um, um, objectionable. I mean, meaning the the domestic side of Wilson, the to use the modern phrase, the administrative state side of Wilson, the mm-hmm. progressive side of Wilson. Um, and of course, Wilson was the first American president to openly criticize the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That the Constitution was was supposed to be 
you know, a living document, as we say today, a Darwinian document. It was supposed to evolve. And uh, the, the Declaration of Independence um, really was what led Chesterton to, to say, you know, the United States is really the only country in the world that has the soul of a church. Hmm. Because it was really founded on a creed. And there's no other country that was founded on a creed. And that creed was expressed in the Declaration of Independence. And your greatest president, Lincoln, believed in that creed. And you know his his Gettysburg Address four score and seven years ago. Yes, when does that take us back to? When did he give that speech? 1863. And four score and seven years doesn't take us back to the Constitution, but to the Declaration of Independence. Mm. That was really the founding document of this country. And Lincoln really believed in it. Now, I, of course, he's not the only president of yours that I... Admired, I must say, I must say that I admired greatly Grover Cleveland, especially when I heard uh, that uh, charge against him in 1884, when the Democrats were accused of being the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Three good things in their place, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and so, yes, I th surely would have voted. For Cleveland, had I been in your country in 1884. Wow. So what would Chesterton say about the state of political affairs now? Uh, well, I, I, I do, do think that the, uh, uh, whether we call it the administrative state or the, uh, the deep state, um, uh, would have been high on his list of things to attack. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, he never cared for the elite, uh, whether it be the financial elite or the uh, bureaucratic elite, uh, whether it be England in the early 20th century or America in the early and even in his 21st. day, right? He's uh, he he's he's somewhat critical of the intelligentsia of his day, you know, with Shaw and Wells, and oh and, yeah, and uh, he's he's the smartest guy in the room. But most people you would survey in his day probably wouldn't have known it, just you know, popularly, right? No, and he would not have uh, advertised himself as being the smartest guy in the world and in, right. in the room. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, uh, Shaw uh, Shaw embodies any number of things that I cannot abide. He, he was a uh, uh, well, he was a prohibitionist in the first place, and uh, uh, prohibition was. Uh, uh, Thank God I wasn't asked my opinion of prohibition when I applied for a passport to come to this country. I don't know that I would have been permitted in. They're wrong about so many things. Most of the evil in this world does not result from staring into the bottom of a beer glass. 
Most of the evil results from staring longingly into a looking glass. Pride, really, is the great evil. Pride is the poison in every other vice. And, and uh, I, I was at a dinner party. I, I don't know how long ago, but uh, I heard a gentleman at the end of the table go on about uh, a man can't believe in himself. Who can he believe in? And I heard him say that, and I turned to my dinner partner sitting across from me, and I said, well, I'll tell you what he can believe in. He can believe in original sin. That's what he can believe in. To believe in yourself is a horrible belief, a dangerous belief, a superstitious belief, and certainly a sin, maybe, maybe even the original sin. I, I, I don't really want to accuse uh, uh, that fellow of, of being a sinner, far be it from me to do that, but he certainly did approach committing the sin of pride, uh, as do uh, uh, any number of uh, the hudges and gudges of this world. The, the hudge, the progressive, hudge, the socialist, and gudge, the plutocrat, gudge, the capitalist, who are really, I think, in league with one another. And uh, I understand you, you have a president now in your country, if I can somehow pretend for just a few moments that uh, I have been transported to 2019. But uh, a president who I suppose could be accused of, of being a gudge of sort, a plutocrat, as a capitalist, but uh, someone at the same time who, who does have a sense of the common man, who understands the common man. Uh, I have read that there are people who, in the streets of your country, say, uh, your, your kind president says what I am thinking, and I think that is entirely true, and certainly a good idea. To have a president who is so uh, open to say exactly what uh, what people are thinking, and who is challenging the, the very sort of people, uh, the cosmopolitans, uh, who really deserve to be challenged. Yeah. Chuck, you think Chesterton would have been a fan of Donald Trump? Well, it's a, a leap on my part to uh, uh, to say that, and and uh, uh, I am taking that leap. I think he he uh, that he would have um, liked Trump. I don't know if he would have admired Trump, uh, but I do think that he would have found himself agreeing with him uh, a lot of the time. Um, uh, Trump, um, the speech he gave last fall, early in the fall to the UN, I thought was a very good speech. And, and it was, it was a speech against the globalists, a speech against the cosmopolitans that, uh, that, uh, Chesterton talked about. And, and, uh, if I can slip for a second and then come back, uh, I mean, he, um, you no, know, I, I very much 
dislike millionaires like Cecil Rhodes, who preach about war, imperial wars, and who brought on the first war that I opposed, the Boer War. Yes, against the Dutch Boers in England. I was a little Englander even then, and and I was an anti-imperialist even then. But you know, a part of me hates millionaires like Andrew Carnegie, who preach peace, as much as I hate millionaires who preach war. Andrew Carnegie, right? He didn't really understand the ordinary emotions of patriotism. I think he under, he, he acquired too much wealth to really appreciate the basic emotions of ordinary people. The ordinary shopkeeper, the ordinary farmer, the ordinary clerk, who really do have a sense of patriotism about them. He always thought he could somehow teach people to love the idea of peace. Now, I, 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 I can love German beer. I can love German music. With even a little effort, I suppose I could learn to love the German language. But beyond that, the idea of peace with Germany. I I don't love, really. I I suppose one could teach Tommy to love Jimmy. But I don't know that anyone will ever teach Tommy to love the idea that he's not fighting Jimmy. And I should think that that's what Carnegie and others are trying to do. Yes, with a little effort I learned to love Germany. But in the mere image of a still and weaponless Europe, there is nothing that anyone will ever love or should. And, uh... If I can break from that, uh, uh, Trump, the speech he was giving, it really... Uh, uh, well, there was a, a wonderful piece in the most recent comment, commentary magazine by Bruce Bauer uh, called the... the I think it was called the globalist fraud. Uh, the, the the idea of, of of teaching the youth of this country to think of themselves as citizens of the world is is not just a bad idea; it's a dangerous idea. Uh, what does what does that mean? And and if we worry about dictators of individual countries, uh, we're going to have a dictator of the world. We're going to have some. Kind of world council. Uh, Chesterton would not have been a fan of the European Union. He would have been a, a Brexiter right. easily. The secular current toward globalism is now being echoed in ecclesial circles by high-ranking churchmen, to, mm-hmm. to, to, to put it euphemistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this unprecedented? Uh, was Chesterton aware of any... Any current leading to this within the church, or is it a, a new phenomenon? Well, in the way that it is being sold to us, it is a new phenomenon. Um, I mean, Chesterton talked about the, the, the there really was a, once a 
a uh, a United States of, of Europe. They wouldn't have used that term, but sure. when Europe was Christendom, it was it was a united Europe. But the united Europe of today, as you properly point out, is a is a secular Europe. It's it's not a Christian Europe. It's an anti-Christian Europe, really. That that uh, purged from its constitution any reference to the to the founding of Europe. And uh, 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 Chesterton, no doubt, would have been accused of of bigotry uh, and xenophobia and all the other uh, things that people get accused of who want um, their nation to have some integrity as uh, as, as a nation. And and uh, uh, clearly, one piece of the whole Brexit phenomenon is to control the borders of England. Which uh, the European Union will really not let them do, and uh, Chesterton would have if if a country doesn't control its borders, not that it's going to deny all immigrants. Uh, Chesterton really uh, was more, I think, more willing to look upon the United States as welcoming the immigrants than England. I mean, he really. I mean, he gets accused, as um, as you're aware. I mean, this whole matter of his canonization is is in part being uh, hung up over charges of anti-Semitism that he didn't like Jews. I, I think that's uh, essentially not true. Uh, but there was a part of him that didn't think non-Englishmen could become Englishmen, mm. not just Jews, but Swedes or. Well, I'm actually not familiar. What does he say about Jews that give uh, his his opposition the leverage against him? Well, I can't pull a quote right out of my head, but um, he did worry that Jews were cosmopolitans. Okay, the Jews were uh, financiers or revolutionaries, and 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 yet he didn't see he was a Zionist. He wanted there to be Chesterton was. yes. He wanted there to be a Jewish state, so that Jews would be known as not just revolutionaries and financiers, so that Jews would be plumbers and farmers and shopkeepers and everything else that was part of a society, and so that therefore it made sense that they have their own society uh, in order to accomplish that. But his his reluctance to um, there is a Jewish society now, though, uh, since long after Chesterton's oh, yeah. death, and and that hasn't that hasn't squelched the uh, right. the accusation that You're they right. are financiers and revolutionaries. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, was Ch- did Chesterton kind of miss the mark there, or uh, well, maybe he didn't understand the the depths of the anti-Semitism that is, is there that that. But you're right that he he uh, uh, the fact that there has been a Jewish state for three quarters of a century now has not eliminated that. But and you I, think he would have advocated like he explicitly advocated for such a thing? He explicitly advocated for a Jewish state and explicitly in those terms that it would make uh, it would reduce anti-Semitism. It would so it the would, Jews could have their own. Sandbox, essentially. Essentially, okay. Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. But again, he didn't. He did. He he really doubted that Swedes could be could become Englishmen. Um, but America, because it was a country founded on a creed, America always had it in its head that anybody could become an American if they subscribed to the creed. And he liked that. He saw that that was being a good the, thing. Being the, de- the declaration. Yes, yes. That, that, uh, that the, the melting pot was um, uh, a good idea that... Uh, when I came to America, I was asked to sign a form denying that I was an anarchist. And I couldn't believe it. I didn't know what to put. And, and uh, But I thought then that really, uh, maybe it, uh, it's important for you to ask such questions. Because you don't have laws denying... Turks and Bulgars and Hungarians and Italians and others for coming, uh, from coming to your country. That's perfectly acceptable to you, as long as those Turks and Bulgars and Hungarians subscribe to your American creed. If they do that, they will become Americans. But you know, there's something else that I think has been forgotten about in your country. The idea of the melting pot not only implies that the things inside the pot should melt, that they should mix together, but really the pot must not melt. There must be a pot. There must be a country to which someone comes, to which these Turks and Bulgars and Italians come. By the way, you're directly quoting Chesterton right now. Well, I hope so. Do you have a photographic memory? How do you do this? I mean, this is amazing to me, just intellectually. How do you you memorize these things? Well, it's a long, (laughs) gradual process. I mean, I've, I've been walking dogs for years and, um, putting card files together for years of great Chesterton lines and, and uh, keeping them in shoeboxes and uh, Thank God committing them that. to memory and, yeah. and weaving them into the one-man show that I do. As, Impressive. As so Chesterton envied the American experiment. Yes. Yeah. How is it that uh, to him, like you say, the American creed... What about this is good in itself being uh, versus some sort of positivism, like good because we say it's good, we hold these truths, uh, and that's our starting point. But he recognizes something good in itself about the American project. What yeah. do you think that is? Well, I, 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 a couple of things. I mean, I, 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 I I don't know if, well, I doubt that Jefferson was a traditional Christian. Well, he's probably a deist. Probably a deist. A red-letter Bibler. Yeah. Jefferson's holy Bible, meaning cutting all the miracles out of the Bible. Right. It was the the, uh, Bible with holes in it. Uh, Not to be confused with a holy Bible. Not to be confused with the H-O-L-Y Bible. Uh, But he did, uh, you know... 
He did believe that we were equal in the sight of either God or nature's God, however he wanted to put it, that there was a creator of some sort and mm. that we were equal in the sight of that creator. And, 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 and Chesterton, uh, his, creed, his creed was the goodness of things, the equality of, of man, and redemption through comradeship. You know, we are all uh, a society. A society of friends. Yes. Yeah. And and a, a society, a society of friends, a society of families. Yeah. Yeah. And I I I um, um, I, I I did a talk the other night in Sacramento and, and uh, on the family and Jefferson. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I kind of conflated Jefferson and Chesterton. Jefferson's, there you go. <laughs> uh, Chesterton's uh, commentary on a talk on um, uh, uh, King George V. He had given a Christmas talk uh, near the end of Chesterton's life in which he sung the praises of the family. And Chesterton wrote an essay uh, having heard that talk and praising the king um, and pointing out that the king isn't really a dictator that the king and most kings really are ordinary people and how important it is that leaders be ordinary people because ordinary people are are intent upon and aware of the importance of defending and preserving and nurturing ordinary things that are the most important things and what could be more important than the family and tradition? And 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 I I was debating with myself before that if uh, about stopping and 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 adding. Well, you Americans right now have a president who really is a very ordinary man. In many respects, he has a lot of money. But he's really a very ordinary man. And I think because he is that, he does fit King George's idea and Chesterton's idea of being someone who defends ordinary things and understands at some level the importance of ordinary things in a way that the elite doesn't, in a way that the cosmopolitans don't I mean, which is why he's a, he's criticized by his opponents the most for being too too brash, too vulgar, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a little too ordinary for their taste, and too much a patriot for their taste. Hmm. Uh, I, I think he, uh, he loves this country, and in a way that, um, well shall we say, a certain unnamed president who preceded him, in my mind, never did. I mean, a, his predecessor loved the idea of what he thought this country ought to be. And you're a historian, by the way, so you, so th there's, a, there's a ton of similarity between the one who shall be unnamed and Woodrow Wilson. I was wondering if you were going to go right there. And I, yes. You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. The, the, Comment on that. 
as 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 it, you're you're you have a doctorate in history, right? For better or for worse. Yes. Okay. <laughs> history is not a liberal art for good reason, but it's worth studying so you can know how things don't have to be the same as they used to be different. But anyway, what's what is the similarity in your mind uh, between the one who shall not be named and Woodrow Wilson? Well, they were both academics to start with. Uh, Wilson was, uh, I think, the only president we've ever had who had a PhD. Uh, in yeah. fact, I think there are yeah, only two definitely. that have ever run for president. Uh, the other one was George McGovern, who hmm. had a PhD in history. And when I was a much younger fellow, I I uh, I voted for George McGovern oh, in 1972. Yes. And in well, fact, what does Chesterton say? Everybody starts a liberal and then ends up a conservative. Yeah. Well, twenty years after that vote, I, I had a Fulbright in Hungary in 1992, and I was asked by my department chairman to give a little paper. There was a conference on the American left in a little town in Austria uh, called Graz, mm. and would I give a paper? Well, okay, I'll I'll do a paper, and so I went over there and and not knowing that the keynote speaker at that conference was George McGovern. <laughs> and this was like two weeks after Clinton had been elected. I, th I hope he thanked you for your vote. Well, after the, the speech, there was a reception in the mayor's hall. And we went to it. I had a little sweatshirt on. I <laughs> and there was George McGovern. And I spoke a half-truth to George McGovern when I was introduced to him, which is that I cast my most enthusiastic vote was my second vote for, for a president that I cast what was then and still actually still probably would be today the most enthusiastic vote I ever cast for president for you, for George McGovern. I would still say that in 2019. That was the half truth. The other half of the truth is that I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> But I, I was, to be quite honest, a reluctant Trump voter in so many were. 2016. So many were. I, I got into the car that day and said to myself, I'm not young. This could be my last vote. Is my last vote going to be for Donald Trump? I had, my wife and I had caucused in Minnesota, which had no primary. They're going to have your one vote next meant year. something. I'm in California. I just, well, that's why I, I voted for, for him. I just did it for yeah, fun. Yeah, that's why I voted for him. I got it. I didn't know what I was going to, well, I knew I wasn't going to vote for Hillary, but when I saw her name on the ballot and I knew the polls in Minnesota were pretty neck and neck and I thought my vote could matter. So it wasn't quite Jonah Goldberg who famously said if the national vote was a tie and he had to cast the deciding vote, he would vote for Trump. But otherwise he wasn't. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was, uh, I was going to be one step ahead of that. I, well, good. And, and his <laughs> position wasn't, really logically tenable it's like why not do it if it's not a tie right yeah yeah <laughs> so uh, but, but back to uh, 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 Wilson for just uh, a few a, a few minutes um, uh, the, the whole make the world safe for democracy thing um, uh, Trump Trump doesn't buy buy into that and and uh, uh, um, I I have a daughter who's very much uh, 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 on the left and who uh, was not going to vote for Trump. And I, and I said, you know, you, you're, you're, you're kind of a 
pacifist. You don't like the United States fighting wars. Trump might very well be your your candidate. Hillary probably Well, isn't. that's the thing. It's very strange that everything the left had been campaigning on up to, you know, three years ago, uh, Trump is now doing, especially as far as foreign policy is concerned. Yeah. And now he's the bad guy because yeah. he doesn't want to go to war with Syria or doesn't want to go to war uh, in the Middle East. Yeah. It's very strange. Yeah. And then, the, of course, the other side of it is the administrative state that, that Wilson endorsed, well, helped create. I, I didn't begin with him, but it really got a significant push from him. As far as foundational, like fundamental change in the American experiment, like the found, at the foundational level, Wilson did a lot to alter that, right? Oh, as far yeah. as currency, as far as income tax. Uh, yeah. And regulatory agencies. Did and, he preside? I can't remember. Did, did Wilson preside over the the Nineteenth Amendment suffrage? Is that uh, let's see. It was ratified during his administration. Okay, uh, as now, was prohibition. Now Chesterton matter. is a is a famous anti suffragist, which is a which is a tough sell to the modern political ear today, right? <laughs> if I if I were to say on this podcast, I don't think women should have the right to vote. Uh, which of course I would never say that would be that would be taken as sacrilegious. No one would ever listen to you again. No one, I would be completely <laughs> blacklisted if I were to ever say on this podcast women should not have the right to vote. And I think the Nineteenth Amendment is the worst thing that ever happened to this country. If I ever said that on this <laughs> podcast, there would be big problems, and nobody would ever listen to this podcast again. Chesterton probably, though, would have agreed with me. Well, this matter of the vote for women, really, I think, should be put to a vote of women. They ought to be the only ones to vote on the subject. And if that were to happen, I think it would be defeated. Women, women understand how unimportant this all is. But we told women that the vote was of frightful importance. We just never imagined that they would believe us. But they did. And as a result, a terrible thing has happened. We won. And now that women have the vote, many among them no longer want to wear skirts or petticoats or uh, such badges of femininity. They think that such dress reveals female submission. On the contrary, it reveals female dignity. After all, what do men wear when they wish to appear safely impressive as kings or judges or priests? They wear not just skirts or petticoats, but long flowing robes of great female dignity. The whole world is under petticoat government, because even the men wear petticoats when they truly wish to govern. But I also worried that the vote for women was going to destroy families, weaken them, certainly. And that women would, 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 would introduce legislation. I know in your country there is much talk about the nanny state. Oh, you have no idea, GK. No idea. Well, I know that term. I wrote about what I called the grandmotherly state. That women would endorse all kinds of legislation where the, the state would take over any number of functions that the family was supposed to provide. 
the the anarchists of Wilson's day, he presided over the, the, the deportation of anarchists from your country. Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, another uh, what I might call celebrity anarchists of your day, of uh, your, your earlier history in your country of Wilson's day. They were deported, driven out of your country by Woodrow Wilson. But you see, they never understood, the anarchists, that if you reduce us all to isolated individuals, if, if you destroy the family, which the anarchists wanted to do, if we all are simply free-floating, isolated individuals, well, then the state, of course, is going to have to come along and perform all kinds of functions that the family should perform. So an anarchist should truly support the family. And the home, really, is itself a place of anarchy. Is it time for a picnic? Well, let's eat on the floor. What color wallpaper do I prefer? Well, brown, so I can draw pictures all over it. They don't understand that the home itself, the family, is a source, a place for anarchy. What is it about the... So the, the 19th Amendment... The, the, Women's suffrage essentially politically divided man from wife, and so divides the family fundamentally. Of course, you know today you could just as easily, as easily uh, double your vote as a family, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but really, that's that's what happened, right? Uh, husband was sort of set against wife politically, so you have this this fracture. Uh, and Chesterton sort of was really prophetic about this. Uh, what would you say about our society today, uh, especially as far as the integrity of the family is concerned? Well, he he worried he worried very much about the. Uh, <laughs> you weren't sure which <laughs> Chucker Chucker Gilbert. He worried he <clears throat> he worried very much about the um, uh, uh, both parents working outside the home. Um, when the children are young, uh, that 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 was uh, 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 it was not going to be a good idea for the way people are going to be, uh, the way children are going to be raised, and uh, that uh, uh, women were were the ones who uh, um, were the ones most inclined and, and most interested and most able to do this. I mean. Uh, the idea of working outside the home. I mean, he. Most men, uh, then and most men now, have routinized jobs. They they don't have terribly interesting, fascinating jobs. Uh, most people don't. Most people have pretty dull, ordinary jobs, and I don't mean that in any kind of denigrating sense. It's just the reality of things. Not very many of us are are. Uh, you know, chief executives and lawyers and and CEOs and whatever were uh, were drudges, and and is it really uh, 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 an exciting thing to be? Uh, <laughs> uh, women, women, uh, uh, modern man thinks that uh, the home is dull. 
and trivial. I will concede that domestic life is hard, but I will never concede that it is dull or trivial. I may pity poor Mrs. Jones for the hugeness of her task, but I will never pity her for the smallness of it. Modern men and modern women, feminists all, like to tell us that motherhood narrows the mind. But really, how can it be a small career to be a mother who is everything to someone? And yet how can it be assumed to be a large career to be a a bank teller or, or a clerk who is the same thing to everyone? You know, he, he, he really um, um, thought that women as mothers, were doing the most important thing that anybody was doing in society. So voting, that is entering into the polis in a way that men enter into the polis, is like that's their thing. They go and, they go and do their voting thing, right? For Chesterton, <laughs> <laughs> for women, doing that would be essentially beneath their dignity. Exactly, exactly. And men, men specialize in wasting time. And they specialize in getting together and talking. Right. And that's what politics is all it, about. It'd be like a woman, like my wife, like lobbying to go join me on my deer hunts, you know, where I, where I like almost never shoot a deer. It's just sort of, <laughs> it's this absurd hobby that I have where I go out with my buddies and like walk around in the forest for days at a time, you know, basically entering the lottery that I might bump into a deer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, and if a woman were to want to do that uh, versus doing something much more useful, it would it sort of seem absurd, right? Yeah. Beneath her. Yeah, yeah. Politics, politics, I think, should be left to the politicians. They really are the only people dull enough not to be bored by it. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Why do you think that's so insane to our modern ears wow we like equality that's like that's like the best thing yeah. being be equal yeah I I, I I I don't know if I have a really if I have a really good answer to that one it's it's stunning to me how um, important that has all uh, that has all become but um, what would Chesterton's so uh well, I'll preface this by there's this uh, this principle of Saint Thomas Aquinas that that uh, well, motus in fine velocior that is things things speed up as they approach their terminus. And it's like terminal velocity. You drop something off the top of a mm -hmm. building, it's going to get faster as it goes down. And in the last four years, eight years, the the amount of uh, acceleration of the destruction of the culture, the destruction of the family is unbelievable. If you would have oh, told me man. like, like four years ago that I'd have to use a, a transgender bathroom, you know, I, know. Uh, I, I wouldn't have believed you. That's just four years ago. I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, what would Chesterton say uh, if he saw our current state of affairs? Would his, would his head just explode or would he have something insightful to say about it? Well, probably both, but, uh, I mean, I have. Hopefully, been you would say something insightful, insightful before his head exploded. Right? Yeah, I have been stunned by the speed with which same-sex marriage happened. I mean, it was just boom, 
almost literally overnight. If I if I could try my hand at a little Chesterton poem that that in a sense gets at this, uh, uh, the song of the strange ascetic. Do we have time for that poem before we end this? Oh, we have all kinds of time, okay. Chuck. This is this okay. is gold. This is the first uh, podcast I've ever taped that is probably going to go viral. Just, <laughs> I'll say that right now. If I should be a heathen, I'd praise the purple vine. My slaves would dig the vineyard, and I would drink the wine. But Higgins is a heathen whose slaves grow lean and gray, that he may drink some tepid milk exactly twice a day. If I should be a heathen, I'd praise Nair's curls. I'd fill my life with love affairs, my house with dancing girls. But Higgins is a heathen, and to lecture rooms is forced, whereas aunts who are not married demand to be divorced. If I should be a heathen, I'd send my armies forth and drive my chariots to the chief of the chieftains of the north. But Higgins was a heathen who drives his dreary quill that lends the poor that funny cash that makes them poorer still. Now if I should die a heathen, why pile my pyre on high and in a great red whirlwind go roaring to the sky. But Higgins did die a heathen, a far richer man than I. And yet they put him in an oven and baked him like a pie. Now it's not for me to ponder this riddle that I write of why this poor old heathen should sin without delight. No, it's up to you to ponder this riddle that I write of why this poor old heathen should sin without delight. No, it's up to you to ponder now that I am finally done the lot of he who lacked the faith and would not have any fun. But I, I love that. And and yeah. the line in it about my, my aunts who are not married demand to be divorced. Right. I don't know if he was thinking about the possibility of two men or two women marrying as he said that. But he pointed the absurdity of it all right. uh, in that little in How that little did, um, so, so uh, I've heard it said by you actually that G.K. Chesterton might have informed uh, Paul VI's opinion on Humana Vitae. How, how so? Um, because Paul VI's explanation in Humana Vitae is, is uh, surprising enough, right? It was mm-hmm. sort of the minority report. Nobody saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Chesterton might have informed that and altered the course of things for the better. How so? Well, Paul VI apparently wrote a, a review of a Chesterton biography, a biography of St. Francis of Assisi. And there is a, a wonderful few pages in there on the great revolution of our time that was beginning in his time. So in Chesterton's day, contraception was becoming uh, a thing. Right, as a, like mm-hmm. a popular, more socially acceptable thing. Birth it's, control it's, was being. It's been around for a long time. Like Saint mm-hmm. Paul writes about it, uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's becoming mainstream in Chesterton's yes. day. Is that fair to say? Yes, and and, and uh, Chesterton wrote an essay in the mid nineteen twenties in which he um, dismissed the Bolshevik Revolution as. You know, it's it's not going to last. It's either going to collapse or it's going to be overthrown. It runs against human nature. 
people want to own something. They want to have a piece of land, piece of property, the home of their own. But the sexual revolution is a revolution that isn't going to be easily uh, gotten rid of because it runs right with our fallen human nature. And and in his biography of Francis, he talks about... Um, uh, I mean, he says the only two things that that young people must learn about uh, sex is that it is beautiful and dangerous. And uh, uh, pornography, he said, I'm not going to argue about you. I, pornographer, pornography should be stamped out with one's feet, not honored, uh, not argued about with one's intellect. To arouse a passion that is already too, <laughs> too powerful on the face of it, uh, is is uh, such a person is a scoundrel, uh, uh, in the in the in the best sense or the worst sense of that word, a scoundrel. And uh, uh, and at the end of that essay, he, he says, once we let sex become. Our, our, uh, some, something other than our servant, it will become our master. And once it becomes our master, it becomes a tyrant. That's right. And, and he was... How true that was. It is. And Paul VI echoes that in a way that still seems prophetic Yeah. when he's writing it half a century ago. Yeah. Yeah. And here we are now in a bizarro world, the upside down. <laughs> And Chesterton is a master of pointing out paradox. Mm -hmm. But I tend to think if he saw things today, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wonder if his optimism could persist. Well, he didn't much care for either optimists or pessimists. He's hopeful, though. He's hopeful. He's hopeful. He's hopeful, but he worried that optimists and pessimists were both essentially kind of determinists, that optimists think everything's going to turn out all right, no matter what you do, and pessimists think everything's going to turn out wrong, no matter what you do. But maybe on the, we can close on this note. There's one difference between optimists and pessimists. An optimist, he says, is someone who thinks everything is good about the world except the pessimist. And the pessimist is someone who thinks everything is bad about the world, except himself. Chuck Chalbert, thank you for all you've done. How, how many decades have you been doing Chesterton now? Two and a half decades. That's not bad. Yeah, 25 years. Not quite, but close. If you were to recommend somebody jump into Chesterton for the first time, where should they start? I would recommend that they really start with my friend Dale Alquist and read The Apostle of Common Sense. You mean that guy right behind me? There, he's somewhere over there, I understand. <laughs> I can see a silhouette of him. Don't tell there. him your interview is better than his. <laughs> that that uh, he has written a couple of primers uh, that uh, are really a good place to start. Chesterton was a, a wonderful thinker. In fact, Ch uh, Dale has a book called The Complete Thinker, which is well worth reading. Um, and then get into Chesterton himself. I, I think he was a great thinker. He was an insightful thinker. Uh, he's not an easy read. He, he, he takes time. Fortunately, he wrote mainly 
essays. He he called himself a journalist, and and that's what he was good at. That's what an essay is, right? It's a, yes, it's a question. Yeah, and, and therefore you can read snippets of Chesterton and and be just fine anywhere. Yes. Jump in. Jump you, in if you anywhere. own orthodoxy, read one chapter of exactly. it. You're gonna, you're exactly. Exactly. You're going to be okay. Most of his and books. You're going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Uh, and and that's just fine. Uh, he he. Um, uh, I I have heard clips of him giving a talk. It was a talk on Rudyard Kipling, and he's very funny, and and yet he's trying to suppress his laughter. He's 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 he he's laughing himself at his own lines, which I got the feeling in listening to it he was making up as he went along, and he was trying hard not to laugh at his at his own lines. But it's very endearing. Yes, very endearing. So, where where would they start? What what text? Oh, as far as Chesterton himself yeah, is yeah. concerned, you know, the, I'll tell you what I started with. When I and I was I was a late comer to Chesterton, I I went to a, a a Jesuit college long enough ago that it was a real Jesuit college. I had I could name ten Jesuit priests that I had in the classroom, but I never read Chesterton, and it, I I didn't major in English, so I don't want to blame the school necessarily. But um, Chesterton was not studied. I didn't talk to students, fellow classmates who were reading. Chesterton. Uh, um, so I was in my late 30s when I finally decided to uh, begin reading him. I, I would read and I would see him quoted and uh, who is this guy? And I think somewhere I, in my parents, uh, my home, I had heard of him, but I, I really didn't know anything. And I, the first book I picked up was What's Wrong with the World? Yeah. And, of course, Chesterton, well, two things. He said, what's wrong with the world is that people don't ask what's right about it and what should be right about it. But he also said, anyone who is asked that question, their response to it should be two words. I am. We're all what's wrong with the world. Ain't We're all the truth? fallen creatures. Yeah. But it's it's a, for me, it was a great book to start because it hooked me and I started to um, uh, read other things, although I'm never going to read everything he he wrote. It's a lot. The, the first time I did the Chesterton show that I that I do um, was at the Midwest Chesterton Conference in Milwaukee in 1990, either 95 or 96. And you know something? If I had known how much people there knew about him, I wouldn't have had the nerve to go do it. Yeah. Um, right. I, 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 I met a fellow there who's now gone uh, from Chicago, Frank Petta, wonderful man, who uh, I knew of Ignatius Press, but I didn't know much about Ignatius Press at that time. And I, I knew nothing about, I knew about Chesterton's books. I knew nothing about his uh, uh, illustrated London News columns. And Frank Petta gave me I don't know, six or eight volumes of the collected works of Chesterton of the Illustrated London News columns. 1,500-word essays, which he wrote for 30 years uh, in bound volumes of Ignatius Press. And I have, I have gone through the whole of those columns, and I have turned 
not all, but a lot of those essays, I, I've edited them, edited, edited them and turned them into little mini talks. And I, I sometimes insert them into presentations I give as Chesterton or use them. I do little essays sometimes for a website called Intellectual Takeout, and I'll do little commentaries on these individual essays. That They're absolute gems. Uh, and at the time I went to do him for the very first time, I didn't even know this stuff existed. Hmm. I had I had written the first show on the basis of of his then published books, such as uh, "What's Wrong with the World" and "Orthodoxy" and "Heretics" and uh, "Eugenics and Other Evils" and and that. <laughs> you would say Chesterton deserves a place in the canon of great Western literature. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. His greatest work, in your opinion? Oh, Orthodoxy or Everlasting Man. Uh, yeah. One of the two. And probably start, I would say start with Orthodoxy. I would the, start with Orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah. Orthodoxy is philosophy and theology. and It is. Everlasting and it, Man is history. And it's, yeah. and it's poesis also. It will, it will, uh, it will, it'll, it'll speak to you. It'll move you. It'll, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's. Many conversions have resulted from a person reading orthodoxy, mm-hmm. I think. And if I can be uh, quite confessional at the end of all this, I, I am, I am, the other half of me is O'Brien. I'm half Irish Catholic, raised Catholic, cradle Catholic. And yeah. like all too many people, were, were, were zapped by the 70s. 70s were worse than the 60s. You boomers. Uh, uh, boomers. Yeah, I, yes. I was an early boomer. And uh, I, I did my, my uh, walking away. And, and, uh, and really, it was, it was not until I started reading Chesterton that I finally decided I'd made a huge mistake. Chesterton, apostle to the boomers. <laughs> if he can save a boomer, then he's a great saint in my book. What a way to end. What a way to end. (laughs) Chuck, thank you so much. Uh, Where can people find you? Uh, What are you up to these days? And uh, plug anything you want, by all means. Well, I'm a retired academic and uh, travel around doing uh, talks as Chesterton or a one-man show a la Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain. I do a one-man show as, as Chesterton. I have a website called historyonstage.net and uh, I, I'm, I'm not a very good techie but uh, I can be uh, I can probably be found via that, that website Excellent. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us and, and cheers to you And cheers to you, John Cheers to you Yes Alright, very good and From all of us at the Albertus Magnus Institute Merry Christmas to you and yours This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, copyright 2019, all rights reserved. For more, visit magnusinstitute.org.